We begin this hour by going to a concert. I want you to imagine this. You've settled into your seat in the auditorium, and before long, the concertmaster signals for a perfect A from the oboe and the orchestra tunes. After a brief pause, the maestro enters, takes the podium, waves his arms, and the music starts. Nothing to it, right? You have no idea. But now you can have an idea, because joining me now from the Radio Foundation in New York City is the distinguished maestro John Malcheri, and author, I should mention. His new book is titled Maestros and Their Music, The Art and Alchemy of Conducting. Uh, maestro, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, I found your book fascinating, and it is just chock full of those inside uh, stories about what you do. Uh, there weren't always conductors, though. That's right. Well, as we know them, I mean, really the art, if we're going to call it that, of conducting really develops uh, maybe, I would say, in, in the early 1800s and becomes a kind of essential well, uh, necessary evil, I think Rod, uh, Robert Schumann referred to us <clears throat> in the 1830s or 40s. But the, the maestro, as we know, it really happens more around 1876. Uh, I, I choose that specific date with the opening of the Bayreuth Theater, uh, Wagner's Theater, uh, which had the sunken orchestra pit. And uh, the result of that was that the orchestra is under the stage looking at the person conducting and the singers are on the stage looking at the person conducting but really the orchestra can't really hear the singers and the singers can sort of hear the orchestra so everybody has to point and look at that one person who can presumably hear all of it so that's really when the maestro as we know it that him her uh, starts so it's a pretty recent phenomenon you write that uh, Giuseppe Verdi didn't like the idea well, he, re <laughs> I, I, I think he was, uh, he was mixed about it, but he really hated the idea that conductors took bows. He thought that was an outrage. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Well, well, he saw us as, as mechanics, right? Because, uh, you know, Verdi was one of the most specific uh, of of composers, uh, more so than Wagner, and in, in his very specific requirements in his scores. He not only tells you a tempo that he wants with a word, uh, like Andante or Allegro or whatever, uh, but then in parenthesis he gives you a metronome marking. So he he saw the conductor as following, you know, the way a sous chef would take a recipe, but that the actual chef uh, was uh, the composer and and in Verdi's letters, you know, he he frequently if he wasn't at a performance of um, uh, of one of his operas, he would write and say, "How were the tempi? How were the tempos?" Because that was the m most important thing for him as far as the structure of his operas. So he just thought we were, you know, mechanics. You know, we were like called a plumber when something leaks. <laughs> well, speaking of tempos, when when we mere uh, consumers air conduct, which I think many of us do listening to a recording. We're just beating time and, and we're not, uh, and we're following the orchestra as opposed to the other way around. There's there's much more to it than, than just uh, keeping the tempo correct. Well, I'll say I, I, all of us, you know, have, you know, you, you beat time with your body. You know, music that has a, a specific tempo, you can't help it. it. You know, your body dances with it. But I would say that air conducting is the opposite of conducting because 
you're responding to something that's happening at you as opposed to engendering it. So it's always going to be that tempo. It's always going to be that retard. It's always going to be that hold. And and the biggest shock comes when you first stand in front of uh, an ensemble. And usually it's not necessarily a full symphony orchestra, but when you slow down, they slow down, right? And when you speed up, they speed up. And it's this kind of weird thing. Oh, look at that. Um, and so if you don't keep the energy going, if you don't have a goal of every phrase and then the larger forms, uh, it just peters out. It just stops. So that's a very <laughs> surprising moment yeah. whenever any conductor first does that. That that really goes, oh, I get it. So that's the, that's the entry point, as it were, of understanding the kind of control that a conductor has over a group of musicians. And, and not only that, but I was startled to realize, and I can't remember when this happened, that the conductor actually cues ahead of the beat. Well, yeah, if you think about it, I, I use the image in the book of, I mean, something that everybody does. Let's say you hammer a nail. So if you, if you think about what you do before your hammer hits the nail, the, the preparation for the actual hit it tells you how far that nail is going to go into the wood, right? So a great big preparation to, to get that nail and ram it right into the wood, you know, right down to the head, that is exactly what a conductor does before something is loud. Uh, a little tap means that you pick up your wrist and the, the hammer just a little bit. So you're actually one beat ahead of the sound. You are indicating with your preparation what the sound is about to be. And as it happens, you're up to the next beat, right? So you're always, there are three times in your head. There's what just happened, what is happening, and what will happen. And I know that that sounds kind of like people are driving off the road right now or thinking, what is he <laughs> yeah. talking about? But if you are driving and listening to this, that's a perfectly good metaphor also because you're driving and you're aware of what you just passed and where you are now, and you're looking down the road, and depending on your speed, you're looking further down the road or closer to the road. And so those three kinds of times, what just happened, what is happening, what's about to happen, is quite normal in the way we walk, the way we run, the way we drive our cars. So if you think about it that way, um, it's not all that unusual, but that's what we're doing all the time as a conductor. My guest is John Malcheri. His new book is called Maestros and Their Music. And John, you've, you've conducted just about everything everywhere, Broadway, opera, uh, the Hollywood Bowl. You were uh, closely associated with Leonard Bernstein for 18 years and uh, have an intimate knowledge of the various challenges. And I think some people might be surprised that there's a difference between conducting, say, in a concert hall versus in an opera pit or a ballet pit or, or on Broadway? What, can you explain? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear where your question's going, and, and yes, indeed, because we call it all, you know, conducting, which I, I have to point out is my favorite word for what we do because in other languages, different kinds of words are used for what we do. I mean, if you translated all the words that, say, in Italian or French or German, and sometimes even the English use, those words either mean chief or master or leader or whatever. But conducting already implies a kind of word that is also used in physics, and it, it does mean the... the um, the transference of, of power or of, of, of energy from one place to another. You conduct it. 
Now, conducting for ballet is completely different from conducting, let's say, you know, an opera, which is quite different from conducting a symphony. In the in the golden age of conductors, which you know people kind of look back on, and I think that would be the probably the first half of the 20th century when the maestros were kind of supreme and when when there was still the smell the the odor of 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 the, of the 19th century because all those men and they were all men were born in the 19th century so there's a kind of linkage of the great romantic era well they all came out of the opera house so if we think about a toscanini or you think about a fort vancler you think about them they generally came out of the opera house because that is the most complicated conducting now a few didn't like stakovsky who was you know unique in so many different ways but when you're in the orchestra pit which means you're conducting maybe a broadway show and it may mean you're conducting an operetta or an opera or a ballet your position is in a completely different place vis-a-vis the accompaniment of many soloists, right? Because if you're conducting a symphony, the orchestra is right in front of you. If you're conducting a symphony that has a singer in it or a violinist playing a concerto, you're focusing on that one person. When you're conducting, say, Aida or Turandot, you have you have a chorus of maybe a hundred people on the stage. You've got four or five soloists. They're all in costume. They've memorized their parts. But they've also have all kinds of things going on, how their body feels today, what the costume is doing, where they have to stand, how they see you. So your control as well as your reception of what their needs are 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 multitudinous and uh, quite different from having a violinist over your left shoulder or a pianist that you can smile at, right? (laughs) And the piano piano doesn't move. No, the piano doesn't move. And and uh, so that's what I'm saying is that the, these things are all conducting. Now, I think the, the least understood is ballet conducting, and it's the one that's uh, the least respected and in many ways the most difficult because unlike opera, uh, you, you, you know, you, in opera you, you hear the singer breathe. I mean, you breathe with them because it's all about the breath, ultimately, how long the phrase is, how she or he needs to breathe, how they have to prepare for a high note or something, or when they're singing in the part of their register where they're not very easily audible, you have to bring down the orchestra. But with ballet, you are watching their feet more than anything else. You're watching their, their, their literally their feet, their toes, whatever. And every ballerina and ballerino is different. And they cannot easily express that to you by their breathing, right? You're watching the patterns. Yeah. The good news is that your eyes are at usually at the level of the stage. So looking straight ahead, you can see their feet without straining your body too much. Whereas with opera, you know, with staircases and things like that, you're frequently staring up at them because the source of the sound is coming from their mouths, and that's already five to six feet above the floor. And if they're standing on a, you know, a great staircase, as in, say, Act Two of Turandot, then she might be 20, 25 feet above your head. And that means you're reading their lips because the sound is going way above your head. Um, so all of these things are different. And, and of course, Broadway, 
you mentioned Broadway, is a place where sometimes you have the opportunity of doing all of these kind of conducting. So if you conduct West Side Story, for example, you've got large dances. If you do On Your Toes, uh, which I produced on Broadway in 1983, you've got the end of Act 1 and end of Act 2 with two big ballets. One, the Princess Zenobia Ballet, and the second, the famous Slaughter on 10th Avenue. So you're not only conducting the songs and the overtures and the duets, but then there are the ballets. So that becomes a kind of really wonderful challenge for you, and you do eight a week. So that's another challenge. (laughs) Wow. You know, you you touched on something that uh, really struck me the first time I realized it was true, which is uh, sound is slow. And given the logistics of the stage and the concert hall, it takes a while for that sound to get to you or to the other musicians. And there's a story you tell about a performance in Turandot that... uh, uh, just really floored me because of the uh, the distances involved and the challenges you had to overcome. Well, this is true uh, of of every opera, but it's also true of of, of symphonies. Now, now, smaller ones in the classical mode, of Haydn, for example, usually you have a, a fairly small ensemble, and they're on the stage. And they can easily hear each other. So the difference in the speed of sound with the speed of light is not as crucial, though it's always playing a part. And I'll get back to that in a second. But when you're dealing with a grand opera, uh, and that's really the the biggest challenge because of the depth of the stage, the distance of the singers, uh, choruses, if... If they can't hear the orchestra as it sounds, they may be hearing the sound of the orchestra bouncing off the back wall of the auditorium, right? So, and then it's then it's bouncing back to them. So it can be, you know, as much as a quarter of a second delay. So they're always going to be late. They have to, as it were, anticipate the beat. They see your hand, but what's accompanying them? The the, the sound is is slower than than where you want them to be. So this becomes a really interesting problem, especially, for example, if you're, as a young conductor, you're doing the offstage conducting. That's really, you know, you imagine that one because, you know, the sound is coming from the wings and if it's fast music, which sometimes happens, say, in a Mahler symphony, um, you could really get into a lot of trouble. Now, but let's hear, but I'm going back to the earlier parenthesis and my answer to you is if you think about the orchestra and you think about how the different families and even within those families of, of, of instruments, the way the sound is made, right? So if you think about the brass instruments, you might consider that the trumpet basically and all of the trombones, the tuba, the horns, they all purse their lips and they basically buzz. They go, <laughs> they make that kind of spitting sound. And that evokes the column of air. And the column of air starts to vibrate at a certain speed, which is, after all, the note. By, by, by the various ways they move their lips, they change the note that is actually being called from that column of air. And they also push valves that change the length of the tubes. Now, that's one way of making sound. But if you look at the woodwinds, a flute player is is blowing across an opening hole a little bit like you would, you know, blow across, say, a Coca-Cola bottle. But next to that flute player is an oboist who is pursing his or her lips and vibrating a double reed. Now, if you think about how different those things are, whereas one is going kind of whoosh and the other is going, 
like that. And they have to do that at the same time and then consider those strings who are drawing a bow across a string to vibrate it. And then if you look at the percussion, they're, they're, they look like they're hitting things. In a way, they are. But mostly, when they hit the symbol or the triangle, they're actually pulling away from it. If you did it in slow motion, you'd see they're almost like pulling the sound out of the metal as opposed to hitting it. Now, all of those people are making sounds in a different way, and somehow, when the conductor raises his or her hands and comes down, they make a sound that is simultaneous. Now, you have to think about how smart orchestras are, how unbelievably intuitive as well as technically proficient they are in order to simply all come in in the same place at the same dynamic in with the same kind of sound or the quality of that sound. Uh, and that's when you start to, you know, you're, you become in awe of the, of the genius and the talent of orchestral players. You take them and you put them in a pit and you have singers above them and you get an idea of just how complicated this is. It, it makes it all seem even more miraculous. It is. Uh, it, is a, it is a miracle. And it's a, I think it kind of represents some really great part of humanity that we can all work together doing different things, doing different things to make something quite beautiful and ultimately uplifting. I love it. I mean, I, I think I think orchestra, the concept of orchestra, is one of the great achievements, uh, 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 cultural achievements of the world, because it has taken natural objects, right? Wood, horsehair, metallurgy, all those things, uh, and put them all together to make sounds that blend together and somehow express some ineffable, inexplicable story about all of us. And, you know, when I take someone to a concert who's never been there before and explain that uh, the only electricity involved is the lights, and it's all acoustic, uh, they're, <laughs> yes. they're totally blown away. Uh, well, that, of course, is, you know, uh, I have two more books in the pipeline, as it were. Oh, and good. The and the third one is really about the core repertory of classical music and it, it, it of course it also deals with chamber music and, and solo recitals but the orchestra but that is one of the fundamentally astonishing things that it's acoustic and it's the, really you know when you think about it almost every other kind of music is either sampled or electronic or comes out of speakers um and when you go to say the detroit symphony and it's wonderful hall and you hear the actual sound of that great orchestra playing, that's people. That's people using their muscles and their talents and their techniques and their their minds to know how they fit in, all to at the service of something great and for you, the audience. And by the way, everybody in that audience is in a very special place to participate. And by the way, I I do talk about how an audience is an equal partner in all of this. I mean, there's a chapter in my book called Relationships, and I think that the ultimate relationship, the one that really matters, should matter to every conductor, but every musician, is what the audience hears and how they experience it. Because without them, there's no point. I mean, they are the point, after all. They are the goal the composer had when it was in the composer's mind. And so... The great, what I call the great performance, which eludes us m much of the time, has to be a, a, 
a transactional experience where the audience is as much cheering you on or as much traveling with you as the players. And we see that in, in sports, right? We see that where we understand how the fans, as they call them in sports, can help and can participate in making someone go even further or even higher or, or faster, slower, whatever that is, that, that kind of human, almost tribal um, activity fuels the great performances. So I don't think, I think it's important for audiences, the people listening who may not be members of an orchestra, to understand that their role is as important as the role of all of us who are or making the music or, or attempting to communicate to, to them. We're all communicating to each other. It's transactional. I'm speaking with conductor John Cherry, whose book is Maestros and Their Music, The Art and Alchemy of Conducting. We're almost at the end of our time, uh, sadly, because there's so much in this book we haven't even touched on, including some of the personalities of the conductors that you've worked with uh, there was one fascinating thing, well, there were many fascinating things, but one in particular that struck me was about two conductors who had an intimate and direct knowledge of Puccini and La Boheme. One was Toscanini, and the other was Sir Thomas Beecham. And each of them worked directly with uh, Puccini on La Boheme, uh, in fact, Toscanini did the world premiere, did he not? Yes, he did. And uh, you compare recordings of these two guys, and one is 15% shorter than the other. Yep. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Well, you know, if you think about it, I sometimes use the image if I, it sometimes helps people because, you know, since music is invisible, it's really hard to kind of, you can talk about it, but you know what what is it i mean it's it's invisible so but if you were standing uh, in the uh, academia in florence with the lights out and in front of you was the statue of david and you had you know a flash camera let's say or you know just a flashlight and and you lit it from where you were standing and then you turned it off that would be your performance of beethoven 5th or of la boheme because you can never express all that's in it. So for Beecham, who was uh, a very graceful and perceptive uh, man, he tends to be much more elastic uh, in the way he he expresses and accompanies the singers. He has a great cast. Um, and, and, and Toscanini, who is doing a live performance, mind you, and so there's a difference here because Toscanini broadcast Act 1 and Act 2, and then the next week he did 3 and 4. And it's 50 years after he's conducted the world premiere, I believe. Uh, yes, actually, I think that's why they did it. So there he is. Now, mind you, he did conduct the world premiere. And, of course, he had a long relationship with Puccini. But Toscanini, 50 years later, was a different person. And uh, he, how he uh, expressed this music, even though he had total authority... And and Beecham's total authority, um, because you can say, well, I discussed this with the composer, it still opens you up to a myriad, myriad differences. And that is the alchemy here. They're both totally authentic, and they're both quite different. And yet, 
they're true to the spirit of the work. And I, I love that. I love the fact that's why when people say, well, you know, I've heard Beethoven's Fifth. Well, yes, you did. You heard part of it. You, you saw that part of the Statue of David. But every time you go to it, you're a little different. The conductor might, is, of course, going to be different. The players are different. Where you're sitting is different. Uh, in your, when you come to Beethoven's Fifth for the first time, who knows, you're 10 years old, you're 50 years old, but it travels with you the rest of your life. So as, as you perceive it differently, it's a mirror of who you are now, as well as a mirror of all the other things that are going on in the hall at that time. And that makes it kind of like Quicksilver. It, it never is the same, and yet it's always recognizable. And that's the miracle. That's the alchemy of this whole thing. My guest has been John Malcheri, a distinguished conductor, a wonderful author. I can't wait to read your next two books, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, spend a few minutes with us about Maestros and Their Music, The Art and Alchemy of Conducting, published by Knopf and available wherever good books are sold. Maestro, thank you so much. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much.